Okay. Good morning, everyone. Today we're going to learn another class on the holiday of Hanukkah. It's going to touch on some of the issues we spoke about last week. But it has such wonderful uh, ramazim and hints and a lot of nice things and also some aspects in Avodah Hashem as well. So it'll be a good complement for what we discussed last week. If you weren't here last week, it doesn't matter. If you were, it'll just reinforce what we studied. We'll start with a very interesting gematria that the Rav Shetzer Rebbe in his Sefer Zerah Kodesh tells us based on the mystical teachings of the Megala Amukos. And he says like this in the first source. He says, <clears throat> and we're learning the Parshos of Yosef HaTzadik, and Hanukkah is always, always in the Parshos where we learn about Joseph and the brothers, and specifically how Joseph reacts with the Egyptian country that he is made the viceroy of in this week's Parsha. So his ascension as being a viceroy is always on Hanukkah, so there has a lot of symbolisms within the Parsha that I'm not going to share with you about Hanukkah's hinted to in this Parsha, front, left, and center. But what's most important is the personality of Yosef. And Yosef represents Kedusha, represents holiness, and he is, has the power to nullify the negative forces that will come into the world and no less than the negative forces of Greece which is called Yavon. And it's very important in today's class to know the Hebrew spelling of Yavon. It's going to be very important in the class. So if you look on the second line, it's spelled Yud, Vav, Nun, Sovis. Right? You see that over there in the second source? Yavon. Therefore, we find an interesting gematria. If you take the numerical value of the word Yosef, Yud, Vav, Samach, Ve, Sovis, that equals 156. If you take the gematria of Melech Yavon, the king of Yavon, you get the gematria 156. Who was the king of Greece at the time of the Hashmonoim? His name was Antiochus, and his gematria is 156. Funny thing. What a coincidence, eh? So what the Zerah Kodesh is saying is that the power of Yosef in his service to Hashem, the way he serves Hashem, is powerful in a way to overcome the forces of Greece. So obviously we have to understand what is this avoda of Yosef that's able to overcome the power of Greece. That's part of what the class is going to be about, but not all, but a little bit of this. And it seems very much, so we have to know what power does Yosef have to overcome Greece? And that what power has he bequeathed to us? As we say, the, the actions of the patriarchs is a sign for the children. So what is it that Yosef did in his being who he was? What attributes and service Hashem does he have that's able to overcome the Greeks? Well, the answer would seem pretty obvious in the next couple sources where Rashi tells us um, when you learn in next in the book of Shmos, when it says goes over briefly the twelve sons of Yaakov, and it says and Yosef was brought down to Mitzrayim, Rashi points out why does the Torah have to tell us that Yosef was in Mitzrayim? We already knew that from before. So Rashi says in source two, the Torah teaches us of Yosef's righteousness. 
He tended the flocks of his father, and he was the same Yosef that was in Mitzrayim and became a king. Yet he remained righteous, which means to say, Yosef was always the same Yosef. When he was the Yosef watching the sheep of his fathers in a religious home, he was Yosef. When he was Yosef, who was the viceroy of Egypt in a very decadent society, he was the same Yosef. He never changed. And look, look at the focus. When Yosef was and became king, the expression they say of him, he was viceroy, but he had the power of a king. So even though he was the king, he still remained the same Yosef. Okay. The Midrash elaborates further. This Rashi is really based on a Midrash. It says, In Mitzrayim, Yosef guarded himself against immorality, and in his merit, Yisrael guarded themselves against immorality. The Jewish people guarded themselves. Rechia Barabbas stated that this merit alone was sufficient to warrant their redemption. So we see that Yosef, as a king, paved the way for us to fight against the Greeks, who were also into an immoral lifestyle. Okay? But what we're going to see even more as you know, if we look in source four, will add to us, if again, look at some interesting words, every word you have to look at, because there's no such thing as an extra word, any embellishment. If you look in source four, back to our al Hanisim prayer, which we talked about last week, it says, I have the Hebrew and the English there. It says, When the kingdom of Greece stood up opposition to your people, Yisrael, to have them forget your Torah and to remove away from them the statutes of your will. So the question is, why does it have to say the kingdom of Greece? Why doesn't it just say the Yavanim? Just say the Greeks. We know who the Greeks are. Why does it have to say Malchus Yavan? The Greek kingship, the kingdom of Yavan. I mean, of course, when you say the Greeks, who are you talking about? If you say, you know, the Americans, you're talking about the country of America, right? When the Americans came to to have freedom from the British, all right? So, obviously, Britain had a kingdom, right? So, you know, why do you have to use the word kingdom over here? So, it seems there's a lot of play on these words kings. It says, when Yosef was a king... It says, uh, the kingdom of Greece. And even with this gematria that the Zerakodesh is bringing from the, uh, the mystical teachings of the Megal Mukos, it has to be Melech Yavon. The yeah. king of Yavon equals Yosef. Not just regular Yavon. So there's obviously something very important about the kingdom of Greece. Something about the kingdom of Yosef. Yosef being king. And what is exactly this battle that's going on over there, which we talked about last week, but there's more than one week's worth of information to discuss over here. So let's try to figure out what is this idea of the kingdom of Greece, more so than anything else. As well, let's try to explain one more thing in source number five, something very unique about Hanukkah. But since we're so religious, we don't even appreciate the uniqueness. What is the proper way to fulfill? The Gemara in Source 5 asked, what's the proper way to fulfill the mitzvah of lighting Hanukkah candles on the eight nights of Hanukkah? So in Source 5, it says, there is the regular way to do the mitzvah. The regular way, and you fulfill the mitzvah 100%, you take one candle, 
Doesn't matter how many people are in the house. You light one candle every day. One candle on the first night of Hanukkah, one candle on the second night of Hanukkah, one candle on the third night of Hanukkah, and you're cringing at that because you never saw that. But that is the mitzvah. And therefore, for example, let's say you're out of town somewhere on Hanukkah, and uh, you don't. it's the seventh night of Hanukkah, and you don't have seven candles. No problem. You have one, you light one, you have fulfilled the mitzvah 100%. That's the mitzvah. There's five people in the house, one people in the house, ten people in the house. One candle every night. That is the mitzvah. Then there's another level, the Gemara said, it's called mahadrin. Mahadrin means to uh, to uh, beautify, to do hidur, hidur. To make the mitzvah more beautiful is you see how many people are in the house? Five people in the house? You light five candles today. And five people house tomorrow, five candles. So if one household has five people in the house, they're going to light five candles every night of Hanukkah. One family has seven in the house, seven candles. One person house, one candle. That beautifies it. What about, and then if you want to put mahadrin, mina mahadrin, beautification upon beautification, you light one candle the first day, one candle the second day, one can I'm sorry, one can- two candles the second day, three the third day, mostly for holich. You increase every day, and that's the one you're used to seeing. It's most unusual that on Hanukkah, this is the one rare occasion where almost all Jews do a mitzvah in the most beautiful way possible. It's very interesting. The whole year long, it's a big battle for many people. But on Hanukkah, it doesn't seem to be a big issue. There's a debate between the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim exactly how you do this third way. Doesn't mean no matter how many people are in the house, it's still one candle on the first night, two <coughs> candles on the second night, three in the entire house. Or do we say each family member lights one, two, three, five, six, and eight for all the eight days of Hanukkah? So, for example, there's 10 people in your house. According to the Svard custom, only, only one person lights eight. If you're Ashkenazi and there's ten people, each one of the ten people would light eight on the eighth night of Hanukkah. So there's differences between Svard and Ashkenaz. Interesting. But anyway, so the obvious question is, why is Hanukkah the holiday that has this ex- three different ways to perform the mitzvah? We don't find this any other way. I mean, we have a general idea of hidur. It's a general idea in all mitzvahs to beautify a mitzvah. Let's say you buy an esrog. You could buy a kosher esrog for $40. You could buy a nicer one for $100. Okay, but that's 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 all mitzvahs have that. You can buy a nicer sukkah. You can buy a nicer kiddush cup. You can buy a nicer, uh, make nicer challahs. But it, it's not like with all these levels over here. Here you got, you know, this is the way, the basic way to do it and then the better way to do it, and then the most optimal way to do it. So why is it that you have three ways to do that? Perhaps we can have some insight into this. So to begin to answer this question, we're going to tell a story. It's very unusual. Uh, We're going to tell a story, and when you talk about Hasidic stories, you know, it's like a piece of Gemara. You got to try to understand what's the depths of the what's the depths of what the story's all about. It's not stamp just a narish kite when a rebbe says something or a rebbe does something. So this is a most unusual story. 
This story is related from the Bnei Yisachar, mm. one of the very early Hasidic Svarim. And uh, we already said, great people, the Chose Lublin said that the Bnei Yisachar himself, his soul was from one of the original souls of the people on the Sanhedrin, Anshei Knesset Agadola. So he's a big, big person, the Bnei Yisachar. Oh, yeah. From Dinov was the city he was in. Anyway... Uh, before he became the rabbi in Dinov, he served as a, uh, got Shimush, got his uh, practicum, as it were, in Rabbanus for four years in a city of Munkach. Ah. Okay, in Munkach. So for four years he served as, you know, interning. And when he came to Munkach, he met uh, a person who had known a very holy rabbi who had passed away, the Rebbe from Kaliv. And he said, maybe you can tell me a story, you know, any stories from the Rebbe of Kaliv uh, that, you know, might be uh, inspiring or I could learn from the story. So the guy says, yes, there was a story I could tell you. And this happened on Hanukkah. Uh, or rather, the man told him that one time he was by the Kaliv, uh, the Rebbe of Kaliv, and it was by the night of Hanukkah. And the Rebbe of Kaliv told over a story before he lit the Hanukkah candles. Okay, and that's like, for us, you know, it's like he, he's trying to teach Torah via the story. So this was the story the Rebbe of Kaliv told this person who now tells the story to the Bnei Yisachar many years later. So he tells the story, <clears throat> if it's true or not, it doesn't matter. I assume it was true. I assume it was true, but it wouldn't have to be true. So I assume, haven't happened. I, I assume it's true. I assume it's true. I assume it's true. Anyway, there's a village, and there was a very wealthy, ignorant Jew, which is an interesting combination. A wealthy, ignorant Jew by the name of Levi. His name was Levi. He was very wealthy. He was amazing in business. And when he had to find a son-in-law for his daughter, although he was ignorant, he appreciated what Torah was. He was a devoted Jew, just ignorant. Um, not every Jew is cut out to learn a lot of Torah. So he wanted to find the finest um, son-in-law who was a scholar in Torah. And he, he found one for himself and for his daughter. And everything was amazing. And the guy becomes more fabulously wealthy. He becomes like a mamish, a multimillionaire. And he decides for his second daughter to find not just a really good yeshiva guy, but now he's like so wealthy, he can he wants to top top guy around you can find. So he now goes with his first son-in-law, who's now a little bit of an expert in this. See, the ignorant man, if he goes to a big Rosh Hashim and says, tell me the biggest scholar, he can, anybody who knows Alf Beis is a big scholar, right? But now he's got his son-in-law who already knows Torah. So he says, now I, you're going to make sure I really get I really get the good son-in-law. So he goes uh, to with his son where it's a big yeshiva and he speaks to Rosh Yeshiva. He wants the top guy in the yeshiva and so it was. The son-in-law, he was tested by the son-in-law. He said, oh yeah, father-in-law, this is really a smart guy. He's a smart guy. Okay, it's time to write the Tenoim. Of course, you have to write the Tenoim. And the okay. custom over there, the custom over there, not every place, is that the father-in-laws sign the Tenoim. That's done at the engagement. We don't have that custom. But someplace they did. So you have to write the Tanoim. And the father-in-law says to the first son-in-law, he says, oh, it's really bad. I'm 
I'm so ignorant. I don't even know how to write my name in Hebrew, oh. which is not unusual because I, I find that even today when I have to uh, officiate, there are people who they know their name, but they don't know how to write their name. So what do you do? There's ways you can get around it. But anyway, so the son says, don't worry, I'll teach you how to write your name. I'll teach you how to write your name. Your name is Levi. Okay, I'm sure everybody knows how the, the three letters of Levi. Yeah. Levi is a Lamed. That's a big letter. That's a big letter. It goes way over the line. Yeah. Then you have a Vav, which is a straight line, a and it's line. regular shaped. And a Yud is a small line. So he tells us finally, it's not a problem. This is what you do. You make for your first letter a long line. A long line for the Lamed. He didn't want to get into details, you know, tell him the letters. Just say, start with a long line. Then make, afterwards, a mittelstreich, he says in Yiddish, a medium line. Uh-oh. And this then afterwards, yeah, and then, yes, and then yeah, after, no, backwards. you start, and then a pintelstreich, yeah. a small one. And that's how you get Levi. Lamed's the big letter, Vav is the middle size, and Yiddish the other one. Well, anyway, you know, it's a chasun and everything's busy and this and that. So when it's time for the father-in-law to write his name, he got a little bit furmished. So instead, he did the little one first, the middle one next, and the long one last. So he makes a yud, and then a vav, and then a nun sofis last, and he writes the word yavan. Okay? And that's the story that the Rebbe of Khalif said before he lit the Hanukkah menorah. The person who related the story to the Bnei Yisachar said, you know what? And I never understood what the story had to do with the lighting of the Hanukkah menorah. So he told us over to the Bnei Yisachar. Oh, well, well, the Bnei Yisachar, who was a great Kabbalist and scholar, he goes, wow, oh man, what a story! Wow, the Rebbe, he, he hid in the story his Ruach HaKodesh, his great wisdom about Hanukkah. From a story. That's what you're going to know when you hear little Hasidic stories. It's not just um, a story. It's a big lesson. Because the fellow's name was Levi. And that's exactly what you have. You have three lines for Levi, right? But then he reversed his name. And when you reverse it, you come out with the spelling of Yavan. And that's all that the Bnei Yisachar said. Whoa. So now we have... Uh, a little bit of a brevity from the Rebbe of Khalif. The Bnei Yisachar goes, Wowie, this is amazing, and shares a little bit, but we still, and the point of the class is to really understand the message of the story. Okay, okay, okay. So he reversed. He reversed the letters. So he reversed Levi, you know, sort of, and you get the word Yavan. So now we're going to spend the balance of the class trying to understand the depths of the story. So number one, you'll have respect for Hasidic stories. After this. You know, instead of just poo-pooing them, it's a Hasidic story, you know. I want to hear real Torah. You understand, the the Hasidic Rebbe's were so great, they were able to distill the greatness into a story. And that's what Rabbi Nachman did. And it's not just a simple story. There's, there's reams and reams of intelligence and, and holy Torah that's in the story. So that's what we're going to attempt to share today. And how does this all fit into, where does the story fit into Hanukkah? 
So if we will now proceed, so th- those are the issues that we have to talk about today to try to understand the story, try to understand the three levels of misobservance of Hanukkah, try to understand what's the focus, why, on the Melech of Yavan, the kingdom of Yavan, and try to focus on where you, what Yosef does to offset that, and that will help us to offset these, uh, and, we, and we're still living with Yavan even till today. So let's start with a medrash in source number six, which is the beginning of understanding here. And the medrash points out um, in one of these parshas over here, uh, it says that Levi, it says Levi, the tribe of Levi parallels, again, says the kingdom of Greece. And how does it parallel? Well, first of all, Ze Shevet Levi, this is the tribe of Levi, is the third son of Yaakov. Ruvain, Shimon, Levi. Okay. Greece is the third of the four regimes that controlled Israel in the exile. We start with Bavel, Modai, then Yavan. That's the third exile. And Edom is the fourth. So it's the third of the Jews, as it were, versus the third of the non-Jews. And also the letters. They have three letters. So the Medrash is telling us that there is some great interaction between these letters over here. Okay? And the Medrash is, is showing us a little bit over here that the battle between the Chashmonoim, because the Chashmonoim were Levites. Were, were not Levites. Well, they, they were came, Kohanim. They came from the tribe they of Levi. They were Kohanim, who, and Kohanim come from the tribe of Levi. Yeah. So the Chashmonoim are really the tribe of Levi. So the battle between the Chashmonaim from Shevet Levi and the Greeks is essentially the battle between the three letters of their name. Whatever that is. Levi, Lamed, Vav, Yud. Fighting against Yavan, Yud, Vav, Nud, Savit. And this is the Medrash talking, not a Hasidic Rebbe. It's the Medrash talking over here. And those Greeks who came to make us forget the Torah, what they obviously wanted to do, as we will see, they wanted us to forget and rearrange the letters, just like in the story of the Amorites. The story is becoming more intriguing now. In other words, a Jew is a Levi. And Levi, first of all, you know, Levi is, is the role model of what all Jews are supposed to be. Because they're the Kohan and Levim. They're the, high, they're the upper crust spirituality. So what they wanted to do, really, was basically take the Levi aspect the tall letter, the middle letter, and the small letter lines, and whip it around to have the small, long, and longer afterwards. All right? So the Chashmonaim, who were from the tribe of Levi, they overcame that desire for making us flip around the letters, and we didn't flip around the letters. All right, this is all mysterious talk until we put some meat on the bone. But the, you see, but this is all what the Midrashim and the stories are all telling us these ideas. So let's try to understand exactly what is the story. What were the Greeks really trying to do on a deeper level than we discussed last week? And how did the Hashemunayim overcome this? We did talk last week at length about this idea of that the Greeks were fighting us in the area of wisdom, if you recall. Where we were said there was different types of wisdom. And they had latched on to the wisdom of science, as it were, devoid of God. 
And what the Chashmonayim uh, were fighting against them was, no, there's all kinds of wisdom. Even the wisdom of God, there's a spiritual aspect. The scientific wisdom has a spiritual aspect. And then there's the wisdom of the Torah and all that kind of stuff. We're not going to repeat all that again. However, it was definitely a battle of wisdoms. But it's, let's take it now a step further. What did the Greeks really know? And this is what the Maral explains a little bit more. The Greeks knew that the Jewish wisdom was better than theirs. They really knew it was better than theirs. But the Jewish wisdom that's better than theirs requires a, a concomitant responsibility to behave like a mensch, which the Greeks didn't want to do. And as we mentioned just a little bit in passing last time, the great philosophers were the biggest lecherous bums in the world, but they had great brains. You know, there was the mind, the mind of the great philosophers, but then their behavior is totally different. Now, they understood that Jewish wisdom was far beyond their wisdom. The real smart ones knew this, but they understood that that wisdom would require a behavior and a comportment that matched it. They got it, and they don't want that. And therefore, as for example, the Medrash tells you, if the Medrash tells you this, don't think that the real, the really smart uh, geniuses of the Greeks, they knew this. The Medjur says in Source 7, if someone tells you that there's wisdom amongst the nations, believe them. In other words, wisdom means scientific wisdom. You can believe them. If a non-Jew discovers something scientifically without biased uh, statistics, we're talking about an honest scientist, because there's non-honest ones. But if, if an honest scientist really comes up with discover something, you can believe it. But if he claims that there is Torah amongst the nations, if you're saying there's Torah amongst the nations, do not believe him. And they bring a proof for the Pusik says, her king and officers are among the heathen, there is no Torah. In other words, the level of scholarship, the level of commitment that's necessary for Torah, the non-Jewish world is just not prepared to deal with it. If a non-Jew says, I've studied your Torah and this is my insight, so don't believe a word he's saying. Because they're just, first of all, they number one, besides all that, they're not given a divine soul that can understand Torah. That's number one. You have to have a certain level of soul that Hashem only gave to Jews. Soft. Nothing, nothing racist about it. It's just a reality. That's all there is to it. The divine neshama that Hashem gave to Jews Yannick Simkei will understanding the most difficult ideas and concepts of Torah. A non-Jew can't, it just can't, isn't able to figure it out, A. B, the requirement based on that knowledge is something the non-Jews aren't even interested in, even if they could figure it out. So if the non-Jew is telling you how to understand Torah, let's say a non-Jew decides he's going to study Torah and he's going to come up with a chiddush in Torah. Don't believe it. He just can't, he can't, he can't get to it. It's, that's not possible. Our wisdom is way beyond theirs. And this was really the, the focal point. It's interesting, just as a side point, it's just too, I can't resist saying it um, as a side point. It doesn't really fit into the whole nature of the class. But the four exiles, you know, why do we have the letters on the dreidel, nun gimel heishin? So some say it's because neis gadol hayasham. It stands for the words, a great miracle happened there. However, that it's not a complete answer because when could you put those letters on the dreidel only after the Hanukkah story. Right. However, tradition tells us that they were playing dreidel 
during the Hanukkah story, yeah. when they were fighting against the Greeks. There's no miracle yet. Right? And there was no miracles yet. So the morale, uh, I'm sorry, not the morale, but the B'nai Yisachar tells us the following, why we have these four letters. It's very interesting, and that it spins, is because the Jews, when we go, and as a matter of fact, it's even part of the Ma'os Tzur that we sing. We sing Ma'os Tzur, five out of, the main theme of the Ma'os Tzur is what? Are going through the four exiles. If you look at the text, it starts with Egypt, and then the next four exiles, and how we overcame them, and then how Mashiach should come. So the the uh, dreidel, which has the four sides, it's symbolic of the four exiles the Jews have to go through, and that's the spinning dreidel. We kind of spin around. Our history goes around these four exiles. Now each of the four exiles attacked a different part of the human condition. The first exile of Bavel was attacking the physicality of the Jew. And in Hebrew, that's the letter Guf. Guf was a gimel. Then came the Medes, and they attacked the spirit, uh, the soul of the Jew, which is the Nefesh. So that's the letter Nun. The Greeks were attacking the seichel, the intellect, the wisdom. That's a sin, a shin. And then Greece and Rome is all three put together. It wasn't a new one. It was it was an overall, all three together, which is hakol, which is everything, which is a hey. So that's where, now you can have a nice tvartor to say at the table, or when you're playing dreidel. It really is symbolic of the four exiles, the Bnei Yisachar here. So it's uh, symbolic of the four exiles, the challenges that each of the exiles gave for us. Okay, he doesn't say, I don't know why, you know, you take all the money if you get a hay, and if you have to put in, I don't, you know, that part I haven't haven't found out yet, you know, the custom we have of giving money, not giving money, all that. But you could work on that on your own. But anyway, but you see it was... A great battle. They were very jealous of our of our wisdom to the point where we know that Talmud tells us the famous story of Talmai Philadelphus, a great bibliophile, a king of Greece, who forced the Jews to take seventy elders into separate rooms and to translate the Torah into Greece, to Greek. Now, why did he want it in Greek if he thought their wisdom was so much greater than ours? Says the Maral, and the Maral says the fact that they wanted to translate the Greek certainly shows they were jealous of it. In other words, that shows that, you know, they, they, they want it, even though they can't understand it. And they kind of want to say, okay, now we translate your tongue to the Greek and you aren't any more special than us. But it really underlied a great jealousy of the wisdom that we had. So this was a great battle of wisdom. The Greeks on the highest level, the highest echelon, knew the Jews were smarter than them. Knew it for a fact. And were very, very jealous of it. And they produced their own wisdom. And that wisdom, they wanted to poison the Jewish people with their wisdom. Okay, so it's a battle of wisdom. But now let's take it another step further and let's see how important a role wisdom plays. And this is a fascinating idea. We're going to play a little word games here. Now we're going to look at the word melech and try to understand what is really a melech and why these three letters are the letters of melech. King Mem, Lamed, Chav Sofis is the word Melech. So we have to just digress to one point. 
Gemara says that Bilam Harasha, the wicked Bilam, he had the power to curse people. And when he cursed them, it came true. Why? Because we are told, uh, and Bilam knew this. Look at source number eight. HaKadosh Baruch gets angry every day for a moment. For a split second, God's anger is unleashed. As the Pesach says, Ki rega ba'apo. For his anger endures for a moment. So then Gomorrah explains, so how long is the moment? So it says the time it takes to say the word rega. Three letters, rega. It's one moment in the day, and it could change during the day, where any curse that's made comes true. But you only have that little window of three letters, rega. Bilam knew that moment. He could count it when that moment is. So people came to, uh, to pay him to kill out people for them to knock him off, his spiritual mafia, as it were. He knew exactly what, at this day, when that moment was. And it's mamish, it's like a split second. And at that moment, he would curse them. Now the question is, wait a minute, but a curse takes more than a moment to say. Tosfos asks the question, yeah. so what could be the curse that you could get? How can you get it all into one second? You only got three letters. What could you already say in three letters? Says the Tosfos on source number nine. It says as a three-letter word. And look at the letter, look at the letter in source nine, the three-letter word, kilem. Chaf lamed mem which means destroy. <coughs> destroy them. Kilem. He would say that word, and whoever had in mind, they were destroyed. So now what did God do that when he tried to do the same thing to the Jews, why did it not work? So look what Tosos writes. Hashem, like our wealthy, ignorant Jew in the story, Hashem reversed the letters. And instead of kilem, came melech. The opposite of kilem, destroy, is melech. So therefore he ended up blessing the Jews. And if you look in the Pasuk, I don't, I don't want to put all the details there, but if you're Martin, you'd like to look up Perich of Gimel, Pasuk of Aleph. It says that twenty three twenty one utruas melech bo. Ah, right. He says the blowing the shofar, the king is right. with them. So in other words, he blessed them with kingship, as opposed to cursing them with destruction. Atkan, the words of Tosos. Fascinating. Now let's take it a step further. Says the Holy Rebbe, the Rebbe from Ruzhin. He says, now let's take a look at these letters and really understand what's going on over here. Now let's look in source number nine. This is beautiful. Let's start. I could let's start with the far right melech. Let's look what the word melech and what makes someone a king. Now not just a king, king, but everybody should be a master over himself. Everybody is. We're all we are called. We're told at Sinai before we got the Torah that we are mamleches koanim. Each and every one is a kingdom of priests. We're all a king. What makes someone really a king? So look at the word melech on the right and look what it's a. Uh, it stands for three words. Mem stands for the word moach, which means brains. So beautiful. Lamed, I got it written out right there. Source 10. Lamed stands for the word lev, which is heart, feelings and emotion. And chaf stands for the word kaved, which are the kidneys. And from the kidneys, that, that, well, that cleans the blood, right? Right, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. cleans the blood. And that deals with the actions of a person. It's the animalistic, the blood flow 
the animalistic the part. Could it be the, the liver also? I'm sorry, was it the, 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 the covet. I'm sorry, the liver. Yeah, I meant the liver. The liver. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not good in my botany. Okay, the liver. I meant the liver. Okay, the covet's the liver, right? I'm just a kidneys for another reason. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. So, so liver, the liver. The liver, it cleans out the blood. The blood is the life force of the human being. It's the physical action. It's the actions of the person. So now we see that this is the key of how to serve Hashem. The way you're supposed to serve Hashem, we're going to call it from top to bottom, which is the melech, the brain, the moach, the lev, the kaveh. In other words, before, really this is thought, speech, and action. Because speech is nothing more than the, than the spirit of the person, the heart. The heart, the feelings. You express your feelings. person expresses feelings. But here's the thing. Before you do anything, you be a melech. Start with the letter mem. Use your brain. Think before anything. Think about what you're planning on doing. Then lamed. Put your heart into it. If this is an important thing, Put your emotions into it. Speak about it. Get excited about it. And then the chaf, the kaved, which is the the liver, which means the blood, which means the physical action, and then you go and do it. You want the brains to influence the emotions, which should influence the actions, and now you are living as a royal person. That's royalty. And that's what you generally know. That means you're not a paziz. You're not going to do things, uh, what's the word? Um, quick. Impulsive. impulsive. Yes. The opposite yes. of impulsivity. Okay? That's a melech. Okay? It's top down. Brains, feelings, actions. Top down approach. Trickle down spirituality. Okay? On the other hand, Bilaam, and that's the way, that makes the Jews who they are. That makes us special people. Bilaam wanted to curse the Jews and said, Kilein. The destruction of a person is when they do the opposite. Because it's the same letters, but it's bottom up. Starting with Kaveh, the liver, then Lev, the heart, then the Moach, then that's the brain. Which means to say... That when the animalistic person wants something, a person who's not a king, he just does it. Something comes up to do, you do it. No thinking, no nothing, you do it. Now once you do it, we'll see, when you do something many times, it influences your desires and your emotions. Mm -hmm. And you feel towards that. And then finally it infiltrates into your brains and then you start thinking that way. And now you, and this is exactly what a liberal is. That's the difference theoretically between a conservative and a liberal. Theoretically, I'm not saying all conservatives, I'm not saying all liberals are that way. But I'm saying in theory, conservatives always you go, what did the Constitution mean? The Constitution was done with brains. And then we got ourselves around that and then we live by that. The liberal says like this, what are you feeling? No, more than that, what are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? You see, why Why have they legalized homosexuality in the United States? Why? Was this a top-down approach or was it a bottom-up approach? Bottom if up. you'd start from the top and use your brains, 
you know that's the craziest thing to do. It's the most destructive thing for a country. You look historic. You read Rome, Dennis Prager, Greece. who's not a religious Jew, but he's a thinking man. He has a whole article, a, a whole to, thing on this. You know, it's just, even if you're not spiritual, this is a destructive thing. It destroys, how can you maintain a people if, if people are, uh, men are married to men and women are married to women? It's not logical. And, and then you, you understand, you don't do it. But if you have people who are already doing it, then what happens? Then you get emotionally involved. And all of a sudden his family says, well, we love our son. We love him. Love you get emotionally connected. Then you go up to the politicians and say, we well, need to change the law and make our brains different. This is how it works. This is how it works. You know, no difference than you have, let's take another uh, very uh, sore point, you know, uh, intermarriage. Okay, you talk 200 years ago to a Jew, intermarriage, even set, not so religious, and never hear of it. Because they intellectually understood this is destruction of the Jewish people. And they were emotionally into that. There's no way this is going to happen. And therefore it didn't happen, top down. But then what happens when years pass and people just want to do what they want to do? And the guy comes to his parents, I want you to meet uh, Juanita. She's a wonderful woman. Christina. 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 You know what? And then, and and you're doing it already. Yeah. And then everybody around you who's friends with you, they love you. Well, are you happy? Yeah. Yes. Happy. As long as you're happy. Okay. So now they're going to get emotionally connected. It's bottom up. And then they go to the rabbi and say, Rabbi, are you going to marry them? Oh, so I can't, boy. you know, it's Orthodox law. Oh. Rabbi, the board will fire you. So bad. The board will fire you. And it happened. It's happened in modern Orthodox synagogues. All right? Oh. And then they fire the rabbi, they hire a reform rabbi, and it becomes a reform shul. It, does, it doesn't, doesn't happen overnight, but it's Over- bottom up. You know, and interesting, now we have another expression. We had we had the expression dig in, remember? We did that a few weeks ago. Dig in. Remember yeah. we talked about dig in, we're supposed to dig into spirituality. Mm-hmm. So now you understand this expression before people drink, bottoms up. Yeah. May not yeah. come from a very holy source. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying for sure. I'm just theorizing. You can argue on this. But bottoms up. You know, we're not bottoms up. We're up we're top down religion. Others are bottom up. You understand the difference over here? Yeah. So this is what the greatest curse to the Jews. Now, Bilaam's smart. He just don't wipe out Jews. He knew you just can't wipe out Jews. You think for a minute, Bilaam thought he could catch that moment of the curse and curse, and God would let them kill out the Jews. Do you think Bilaam's such a fool? He's very clever, Bilaam. He says, listen, I can, I can make a, a, a blessing and a curse, and the curse is that the Jews should start behaving differently instead of using their brains first to affect their emotion and then to affect their action, we're going to skip them to start doing actions without thinking that will affect their emotions and then will affect their brains and there will be a distortion of the brains. You with me? You understand? That was the curse. It is a curse. And then Hashem says, not going to be. I'm going to make him a melech the way it's supposed to be. So that, that's the incredible idea over here. That's the idea of a melech. A melech is top down. And that's the way it should be in every aspect of our Yiddishkeit. You know, it's it, it, you know, on the best level, it's not the best thing for people to just do misses and not know why they're doing it. 
because you're missing a lot. Really, you have to study and use your brain and understand where mitzvahs fit into the whole scheme of Yiddishkeit and where this particular mitzvah fits in intellectually into the whole scheme of Yiddishkeit. And then when you see how amazing it is, get yourself emotionally connected. Wow, what a privilege it is to put tefillin on. I'm excited. I'm emotionally connected to putting on tefillin or making challah. And then you do it that way. And that's the real way things are supposed to be done. That's the way Melech does things. And the opposite is destruction. Okay, that's a beautiful idea. Now, with this, we can pivot now to, uh, to appreciate everything that's going to happen now. So let's go back and look how the Greeks, how clever they were. They were smart. So they figured like that. They already know that two um, regimes tried to destroy the Jewish people already spiritually. That was Bavel and Modai. Those are the first two exiles. And uh, they saw that they weren't able to destroy the Jews. And they stood the reason was because these nations were trying to kilem, do the bottom-up approach. These nations were trying to work this idea, just get the Jews to physically do Averos and get them physically first and then move along the way. But they saw it really didn't work because at the end of the day, Jews are more intellectual than not and you couldn't get them down that way. The Greeks saw that this approach of Kilaim didn't work. Bilam tried it, didn't work. Bavel tried it. I don't have the details to get into each one and how I can prove to all that. You just have to accept it, what I'm saying right now. But they tried all these approaches, always trying the key lame approach, the bottoms-up approach, and the Jews are already on guard against the bottom-up approach of anti-Semitism and assimilation because we're intellectuals. So this was the wickedness of the Greeks. The Greeks said the only way we could defeat them was have to beat them at their own game. That, the other, the other um, Goliot were, they would try to get them physically, get them to physically do sins, and once they get them to physically do sins, and, and assimilate a little there, you know, or physically whatever, make the body happy, then we'll get their emotions connected, then we'll get to their, their philosophy and take them down. Okay, that was what the other nations had tried, and it did not work. Just like it, Bilam wasn't able to do it, Bavel tried that, couldn't do it, and Modai tried it, couldn't do it. So now the Greeks are smarter. They say, listen, let's just beat the Jews at their own game. And they're a top-down type of people, so let's take them down with a top-down approach. But you know what? We'll change what the top is. These are Jews, they don't do anything before they think. So let's give them something else to think about. Give them something very enticing that you ain't going to go for this low crash. Just go get drunk in a bar with other people. Just don't go for that. Not in those days, at least. Huh. How, do you, how, do you, how do you get people to assimilate? You know, let's go to a bar. Let's have a drink. Let's, you know, I'll bring my, my girlfriends over. I'll have a good time, this mm. and that. Mm. And once you, 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 your mom is knee-deep in that stuff, then you get connected. Then, you know, my Yiddish kid doesn't matter. Well, that's what the previous goal tried. It didn't work. Just, what do you do? What do, what do we got to go? We got to go to Yeshiva and study. We don't want to do this. So the Greeks thought it doesn't work. Bottom-up Jews doesn't... This is hundreds of thousands of years ago when Jews were a little bit better than they are today. Okay. But they, it doesn't work. Jews, Jews are... They're smart guys. All the good guys go to Yeshiva. So I said, okay. So what do we do? We're going to come to them with Chachma. We're going to come to them with Wisdom. Really smart stuff. And Jews like that stuff. And they're going to really focus on science. And they're going to show them things that maybe they didn't learn in yeshiva. And really smart intellectual stuff. 
This is exactly how the um, Enlightenment movement Haskell, start, Haskell. Haskell started in the 1800s. Yeah, they weren't saying, go be a bum. They weren't saying, go be a bum to the Jews in the 1800s. They said, what do you mean we're going to get to go to university? And you're going to learn really good stuff. Psychology and botany and all this stuff. But veiled beneath that is uh, atheism. It was veiled underneath. Yeah. But but and 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 top guys in yeshivas mm-hmm. were attracted to it. I forgot which I don't remember is which which Rosh Hashiva was. Which Rosh Hashiva? He paid the top boys money. Don't go to yeshiva. He paid somebody like Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky in his time. Zichron Levracha, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, the Godelador, who passed away around 1980s. He was growing up in in Russia, in Europe, in the, eight, in the early 1900s. Lately. You know, he was one of the top guys. And he saw top guys in the yeshiva were just getting sucked into enlightenment. And the Russian yeshivas was, didn't know what to do with it. They couldn't handle it because it was intelligence against wisdom versus wisdom. Right. It wasn't like, no, a Jew in the, in the late 1800s, they weren't interested in, in drinking with the Polacks. They weren't. They, they hated them. You know, you don't want to be with them. I mean, they were anti-Semites. They were terrible to them. And you, what do you want to do? It's disgusting, right? But when they, when this, when this enlightenment came, this was Chachma. It was such an attraction to the real yeshiva bacher was being attracted to it. So this is what the Greeks wanted to do. This is the. You see the intelligent way of trying to hit us with their wisdom. It's it's. What do you mean? We're we're significant. We're very important people too. We just don't do things hastily. We think things through. But you know, there's also a part of your Torah. God revealed Himself when He created the world, and that's science. And there's so much we can learn. This will even make you a bigger Torah scholar. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they start with that, but there's veiled in the heresy that's there. So now let's see how this fits into the word. Yavan. What I'm going to basically do, if you're charting this out, you take the word kilem, kilem, and the parallel with Yavan. And this is how you destroy them. Because what did we say a few weeks ago based on the Zohar? That the Yud is the symbol, is the letter symbolic of what? Chachma. Wisdom. So you start with a Yud. Yavan start with a Yud. That's wisdom. And what does that mean? We penetrate your brain. Now, we get you to think really intelligently, but with a little bit of a Greek influence. Just a little tad of Greek, you know, and this and that, and maybe there is no God and all that kind of stuff. And that, we infiltrate the mind. That's so dangerous, because once the mind is infiltrated, what happens to that little yud of wisdom? It now affects your desire in the hearts. In other words, now the next letter is the vav as the yud goes down, from the wisdom, right? That's the head. It's at the top, right? So now it goes into the heart, which is below. So the line extends, as it were, that it infiltrates the heart and your desires. And then finally, where does it go? Till actualizing with the body parts that actively behave on that. And that extends the letter lower that it becomes a nun sophis to the very bottom of the person. And that's what Yavon is. Yavon, I'm sorry, I should have, I'm sorry, I told you the wrong thing. That Yavon relates to Melech, I'm sorry, to right. Melech. Right. In other words, exactly, it's Melech, not Kilem. So just like Melech is Moach, Lev, Kaved, brains, heart, liver, uh, right? 
So therefore, it's thought, speech, action. Yavan, Yud, is wisdom. As it gets to the emotion, it elongates. It becomes more of you. It affects now your emotions. And then finally, it comes the actions. The Nun Sophis go straight to the bottom. And that's why we have to say that this negative force is called Melech Yavan. You see why they keep calling it Melech Yavan? It's not just Yavan, but it's Melech. Melech says the approach of the anti-Jewish approach was being a Melech. Beat them at their own game. A Melech Yavan, which would now be able to get them to use their brains, but to corrupt their brains. And when you infiltrate the corruption, then it corrupts the feelings, and then it eventually corrupts the actions, and that's the way they would be able to succeed against the Jewish people. That was the game plan. <laughs> All right, so now, but now if we put them against Yosef, the measure saying, but Yosef could always beat that. Because Yosef was also a melech, and Yosef always first used his brains, then his feelings, and then his actions. And that's why Yosef was always a very good competition. He never fell into the impurity of Egypt because he never f- would do anything. What kept him back from all the... The Egyptians were the opposite. The Egyptians were totally physical people and they developed philosophy from the physicality. Yosef remained the man of brains, never allowed himself to suck himself into it. And therefore, he would be a formidable foe where he never fell into immorality. He always stuck with his brains that controlled his emotions, that controlled us, and he didn't give in to anything. But, and this is where Yosef, Mary says, Yosef could contend with, with, was, was equal to Greece. But here's the little subtle difference. But Yosef was contending against Egyptians who was the Kilaim philosophy. So he as a melech could easily fight against Kilaim. But the Egyptians weren't so smart intellectually. So although Yosef, on the one end, has the same numerical value, which means, what does it really mean? They use the same modus operandi. Yosef is the same 186, which is just like Melech Yavan, which is the modus operandi of top-bottom. But they're doing top-bottom to corrupt. By from the top it's corrupted and through the system it becomes corrupt. Well, Yosef was intact at the top and was perfectly fine through the top. And that's how Yosef could easily take them on. Yeah, but that was Yosef. And that was Yosef in Egypt where his enemy was using the reverse. Egypt was the reverse. Egypt was Kilan. They're a bunch of chazerim. They're a bunch of pigs. They're a bunch of heathens. So guess what? That and, and, and that heathen... See, here's the point we're trying to make. There's three different ways you come to philosophies. Three different ways, and only one is the good way. One way, totally wrong, is you're a behemoth. You mamish have no philosophy. You're just a behemoth. You want to do everything wrong. You get emotionally connected with it, and now you legalize it, and now that becomes your brains. That was Egypt. right? That, that's your brains. That's your philosophy. Philosophy based on being a behemoth. Right? And that, you have many people like that. Next... And, and, and a Jew can kind of resist that because they know where it's coming from. But then you got the other way, the Greek way is, no, we'll do top to bottom. But the well, problem is, right away in the intellectual part, and we'll take something that appears to be godly, which is science, but we'll just corrupt it enough 
then intellectually I can deny God, then I can get emotionally connected to that, and then we can live with that way. And you could live as atheists who don't believe in God, and they become very corrupt people as well. The only way you really can live is you have to start with the brains of Torah wisdom. Torah wisdom that's not corruptible, like Yosef, and then that guides your emotions, and then that guides uh, your emotions and the way you act. So whenever the Jews were up against the reversism, they could deal with it. They dealt with it in Egypt. They dealt with it against Bilam. They dealt with it against uh, Bava. They dealt against Mada. They did it. And that was your normal battle between good and evil. And Yosef had that formula. And that always helped the Jews. And now he comes to his match with the Greeks. Because now the Greeks are just like Yosef. Melech Yavon. They're telling Jews, you guys are kings and we sh- we agree with you 100%. See, this catches the Jews off guard. They used to the behemoths come in. Listen, we're a bunch of behemoths. Be a behemoth with us. Yeah, get out of here. We're not interested in you. We have a philosophy of behemoth. Eh, get out of here. We're not behemoths. But the Greeks says, you guys are smart guys. So we're going to share with you wisdom. Hmm? Let's hear. Hmm, let's hear. Well, we're going to talk about the synodic month. You guys need to know that, don't you? Because you have to do Kiddush Levana, Right. So we have to know what the synodic month is, and we have all kinds of information about when a person actually dies and this and that. You need that for your halacha. Oh yeah, Ooh, it's interesting. All this, but then they would, but they knew, but they're going to cut in at the end of the day. We're going to show that, but really, in all this, you really don't need God, and they're going to infiltrate our minds. Yeah. And this was something Jews could not easily deal with because that wasn't the natural way to go against it, and that's why they were sucked up and they're losing. So we still have to do one more little bit over here. This is, isn't this fascinating? You have to hold cup. This is a fascinating thing. Now let's, now let's do a little more. Let's come back to that matters. The three letters, Levi versus Yavon. And let's try to see some other similarities and differences between the words Levi and Yavon. So there's two basic things. Let's first let's look at the letter Lamed because that's where the differences are. Really, two of the three letters are the same. Yeah. You have a Yud and a Vav. They both have a yud and a vav. But, but Levi has a lamed and Yavan has a nun sofis. What's the difference between a lamed and a nun sofis? So let's look at a lamed. A lamed, number one, 20. it, uh, 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 or let's uh, rather, uh, so number one is, uh, one second, let me get this over here. Okay, no, uh, so the two, uh, rather the two differences. The nun sofis goes below the line. The nun sofis, when you rake a regular nun sofis, like this is the line where letters are. Yeah. Above goes, goes here, down. a base goes here. Nun sofis goes below the line. The lamed above. Okay. The lamed goes above the line. Okay. The nun is totally straight, while the lamed would look like this. The top is like this, the middle is like that, and then the bottom is like this. Got that? Boom. 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 Lamed bow. Okay. So now... The Zera Kodesh explains in source number 11 what the Lamed actually represents. The shape of the Lamed is fascinating. This, this is unbelievable, the orthography of, of, of the letters. There's so much to learn from every letter. A Lamed is what? He's a Lamed represents the length of the human body, which is divided into three parts, the head, torso, and arms, and legs. Okay, so let's take a look. The head, I think it's got a head. This is the head. This is the torso. And the arms, and then that's the leg. So what's going on over? So 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 the uh, commentaries explain a little bit better. What do you have? You have the fact that the starts with here, and then across means it's bent. 
when it goes across, it's like he's bent over. This is like the tzaddik. Okay? So the middle part of the lamid, which represents the body, it's in this position. This represents the body. It means it's prostrated. Prostrating to Hashem. Okay? Someone bowing down to Hashem. The head, with the head up, meaning my thoughts are always towards God. That's what a lamid is. My head is up towards God. My body bent, prostrated to God because I sublimate myself to God and then the legs do what the legs do. So now you see the difference between a lamid and a nun sofis. The nun sofis is straight. You don't bow down to nobody. They ain't no God. You're not subservient to anybody. The philosopher is independent being. He's not subservient to anybody. Right? And therefore, it will not subjugate him to what Torah has to say. Because the scientist never bows down to anything that he doesn't understand. If I don't see it, I don't believe it, it doesn't exist, and I'll never bow down to God. I've, I have, what do you said, uh, what do you call those corners? I've cut up a million cadavers that I never found a soul in anyone. There ain't no soul. The nun sofis don't bow down to anybody. And where, how far does the nun sofis go? It goes all the way beneath the line to the lowest of the lowest places. And then the lamid is prepared to nullify itself and bend before Hashem, before Hashem's Kedusha. As we say in, in the Nishmas prayer 12, and every upright figure shall bow down before you. Those are Jews who respect Hashem. And therefore the line goes above the line connecting to Hashem. So that's the difference between the lamid and the nun sofis. Big differences. And I understand how that will affect their, uh, compa- their similarities of the Vav and the Yuds. The Vavs and the Yuds, the emotions and the actions will be affected by, is it attached to a Lamed? Or is it affected to a Nun Sofis? So now you understand, the wisdom of the Greeks was to fight as the, on the Melech structure, the top to bottom way they wanted to do it. So they wanted to do top to bottom, Top to bottom means we start at the top is the brains. Yud is the brains. Brains aren't given into nothing, but it's intellectual. The Jews can get sucked into that. Then it then affects the emotions, which is the vav, which is the next part. And then finally the actions. I'll take you right down to the ground is the nun sofis. This was a great challenge to the Jews. So how were they able to resist it? We have to come up with a new way of resisting it. You understand the problem here? Mm-hmm. If we're just going to be in the yeshiva, here's the issue. If we're just going to be in the yeshiva, it's not going to be enough to resist it because we're just in with brains. They got wisdom too. So let's go to this. So now, oh, so now we'll just quote the Shvile Pinchas, who very succinctly discovers, says the whole issue here. The Greeks cleverly attacked Yisrael by trying to influence their minds according to the scheme of Melech, Moach Lev Kaveh. By attacking from the top downward, they planned to corrupt the Jewish minds and thoughts with Greek wisdom, which would then affect the will in the heart and the deeds from the liver not to fulfill Hashem's uh, mitzvahs. Therefore, the Hashemite retaliated in kind. How do they do it? Now we know whenever the non-Jew attacks one way, you always go the other way. We learned that from Avram. Avram said to load. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. The world you always have, when the non-Jews are attacking, you find the way they're attacking you, there's only one way to deal with it. You go the other way. So how would be the other way now? By teaching you how to serve Hashem from the bottom upward. 
Now we're going to have to go bottoms up. Only now. When they're attacking you up, down, you have to go down, up. You go down, up. And therefore, following the format, key lame, this is the only time you would do it. Now, what is this based on? It's based on a very big teaching of the Sefer HaChinuch. The Sefer HaChinuch teaches us in Source 14 a very important rule. It says, no, that a person is affected according to his actions. His heart and all his thoughts always follow the actions he is engaged in, whether they be good or evil. This is true. That is the bottom-up philosophy. If you do a lot of Averos, it is going to affect you emotionally and intellectually, no question about it. If you do a lot of mitzvahs, same thing. Same thing. Even a totally evil person, if he were to perform mitzvahs and engage in Torah study, even with ulterior motives and without sincere proper intent, will turn to the good. The insincere performance of mitzvahs will eventually result in the sincere performance of mitzvahs. The force of his deeds will eradicate the Yetzirah, for our hearts are affected by our actions. Let's say, so, person doesn't want to give tzedakah. He's a miser. There's only one solution. Start giving. Start giving. Uh, just give. Okay, I'll give, I'll give. And that's why, for example, there, it's better if you have a choice. You're gonna, let's say you're going to give $1,000 to tzedakah for a year. That's your miser. That's what it is. What's better, to write a check for $1,000 or? or to uh, give a dollar at every one of the three prayers for the entire year, which is approximately 365 times three is 1,000. It's better to give a dollar. Why? Because it trains you to give. The bo- you get used to doing things. You can get used to anything. It's, it's what you call behavior modification. And you just do it and do it and do it. And if you keep putting on tefillin, you know, the biggest problem you deal with, you try to be makar of certain people, and, you know, people, big, big philosophers. You know, I'm not going to put it out because I don't understand the system and this and that until I get it. You know, he never goes anywhere. It's this area of Chabad is something learned from Chabad in a certain area. I'm not saying everything from Chabad, but this just do it, idiot. Put your tefillin on. It'll do something to you. It does. You put it on every day. You know, after a while, you get used to it, you can put it on. It's not, it's not so strange anymore. And then you get connected to it. Oh, that should be a nice pair of tefillin. I bring it on every day. It's not going to be so garbage. It's totally right. nice. You know, so you know, maybe you want to understand what it is about. This is tried and true. The way you dress, everything, the actions you do affect who you are. Now, of course, now here's very important. You can say, wait a minute, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. But the Egyptians were doing the same thing too. Yeah, but they didn't have, what they were doing was bad to begin with. Yeah. In other words, if you're the Egyptians, well, we just want to have immorality. So that's what we do, and therefore we get emotionally connected to it. But thank God we have a Torah. So when the Torah tells you to do actions, even if you don't understand it, it's just in the realm of action. When you do mitzvahs without understanding it, it still does something powerful to you. Your body movement affects you if you like it or not. It just happens that way. You could take a rush. He said you could take a rush up. Okay, now what's going to get him to do it? Okay, I'll pay you to do it. That's where you get this, what do you call, learn and earn things. NCSY. These kids do not want to learn. What do you have now, these kids now in, in university? Yeah, they have now, they, they, say, they do like this. They say, listen, you come for 10 weeks... We'll pay you a hundred dollars, I'm a five hundred dollars, and if you come every time, you get a free trip to Israel. Now they are not coming because they want to learn Torah. They're going, they want the trip to Israel. They want the five hundred dollars. But guess what? There's a certain percentage of them will say, you know, this is really interesting. That's right. It's cost. Or you could pay them. We'll pay you to come to put on tefillin. 
Okay, now he certainly isn't spiritually inclined, but you know, if you keep putting on tefillin every day, it's going to do something to you. That, that's what the power of mitzvahs are. And unfortunately, the power of Averis are the same thing. So now here's what's going on with the Chashmonoim. They understood, you know, we're in trouble now. We've been always teaching our children, we've been educating everybody top down. Top down, top down. Top down, we're going to get in big trouble with top down. Because this Greek top down is really very attractive to them. Very attractive to them. So that's the problem. How do you deal with it? So we're going to reverse it now. We're going to start bottom up. Bottom up. Focus on mitzvah performance. Focus on kindness. Focus on the good deeds. And let's forget about discussing religion right now. Let's forget about talking philosophy right now. Just do mitzvahs. And let's get emotionally connected to the mitzvahs. And after emotionally connected, then we're going to start studying the wisdom based on the Jewish things we're doing. And that will focus our intellect in the right way. And that was the, the uh, what do you call it, plan B in making this happen. And that is why we were, they were focusing more. Let's just do the mitzvahs, guys. Stop philosophy. Don't sit and philosophize about things. We don't. We're not going to touch philosophy. That's why it's interesting. Post in the 1900s, after the onslaught of the Enlightenment movement, they, the yeshiva world was very much against any philosophy. Let's not talk a lot. Let's just stick to the basics. And it was probably what Hasidus was also trying to do. Hasidus was saying, forget about the deep, deep intellectual part. Let's just focus on the body, the body mitzvahs, the body kindness, all the body mitzvahs. The mitzvahs will impact on a person when you're afraid that the mind can get warped. But that's what the Chabad is doing with the lul of an etrog, with the sukkah, right. with, so, with the tefillin. And it, and it is key. able to, to make inroads. So that's what really was the way they were able to feed them. So look at how it all went full circle over here. When we're in Egypt... And we're during Bilam and, and the first two exiles where they're trying to go bottoms up on us. So we always were top down and we were above the fray. We were beyond these people. But the Greeks, that was the real new battle. They were up. They came up to our level. And that's the Melech Yavan. You guys are kings. We're kings too. We're intellig- intelligentsias too. We're the same kind of people. And the Jews get sucked into that. And now that's the Yavan. It starts with a little chokhmah on the top, then it gets wider, then it bears you into the ground. And it had to be the tribe of Levi who understood, no, Levi who they themselves understood. It's the top-down approach. It's the top-down approach, but now we're going to have to reverse it. We're going to have to show them the opposite. That showed Levi's great wisdom over here. And that's why it says they wanted to stop us. If you go back to source another minute or two, then you go back to the, the Al-Hanisim prayer in source four. What did they want us to forget? And to turn away from the statutes of the will. Now, what are chukim? Chukim mitzvahs we don't understand. What bothered the Greeks more than anything else? Mitzvahs to Jews that they didn't understand. On a simple level, the Shem Yishmol says, because it had to do with the intellect. Well, how can you do a mitzvah you don't understand? It goes against intelligence. Right. But now it's even and deeper. Now it's even deeper. It's saying, but this is what the Jews had to be more committed to, to the chukim. Stop understanding things. Don't make any business of understanding things. Because now the understanding is getting very dangerous. Let's just plug it in the way we're supposed to do it. Now with this, we can now understand our little story. Let's come back to the story now. And now the story makes sense. Let's review now. The Chashmonayim came from the tribe of Levi. 
They were able to defeat the Greeks by having the three letters of Levi overcome the three letters of Yavan. Because the three letters of Yavan, they wanted to destroy the Jews with the level of Yavan. Yud is the brain, Chachma. Then it affects the Vav, which affects the heart as it goes further. And then it affects the Nun Sophis, the uh, kidneys, and even the simple things. And there the Nun, which is the straight, will not bend itself to anybody. That was Yavan. That was how they were trying to infiltrate with a top-down approach. But a negative top-down approach, right? Which the Jews couldn't handle. So the Chashmurim decided to fight with them with the opposite approach, with the Kilim, which first comes from the kidneys and the heart and the brain, which is hinted to in the letters of Levi as well, because the Lamed is the person who is able to bend over to Hashem, which really, when it bends over to Hashem, that's really, think about it, what's Levi? It's the Lamed is the Kaved, is the liver first. Because the Lamed means the guy who bends to Hashem, who subjugates Hashem, doesn't think about what he does. I just do it. That, that's the Lamed. The Lamed means I'm not you. The Yud is Chachma. And the Greeks use Chachma in an improductive and not good way. Levi means we start with a Lamed, which means it's a person who, who can bend himself over, who's not using his brains. So I'm just, I'll just do what you want me to do. Okay? That's that uh, desire to do that. And then he's saying, that's the action. And once you do that, now that impacts on the heart, and that becomes what? The Vav. That's the next part, parallel to the Vav of Yavam. And then finally it gets to the Yud, which is the Chachma. The reverse. You understand? Levi, Islamid, is the action because you prostrate yourself. You don't think. It's the Kaved. You, you do what Hashem wants and that's all. Then comes the Vav. That becomes infiltrating more. Now we're up, going up to the heart and then up the rank. You see, you see what's happening over here? Yavon, Yavon, Yud, Vav, Nun, Sophis, parallels, Melech. We'll start with the brain and from the brain go to the heart and then to the actions. And the brain, which will be skewed, will now infiltrate to the vav. The heart will be skewed. And then to the nun sofis, that takes you to the bottom of the ground. And your actions will be all messed up. So now Levi was smart. It's Levi can defeat Yavon because Levi reverses with kilem, with kidneys, heart, and head, which is the lamid, which I bend over. I do without using my brains. I subjugate. I do it in a way that I'm doing as Hashem wants. That's the lower level. And then it impacts the vav, which is now the heart, moving up. And then it goes up to the yud, which is the chachma, which is the chachma is determined by the way I do things. Wow. Isn't that amazing insight? So that's what the Medr says. That Levi has three letters against Yavan. Yavan wanted Jews to do the Yavan way, which the Jews had been used to, the Melech way, top down, but the Yavan style, which a corruption of it, which takes you down to about the Nova line. So Levi says, well, now we're going to do the opposite bottom from bottom up. Okay, one last thing, Mamish, another two, three, I'm really sorry, but now what about the three <laughs> ways of doing the missile lighting the candles? Yeah. We didn't get to that. So you say like this, these three ways are really telling us the three ways to serve Hashem. And there's the basic way, the nicer way, and even nicer than that. 
So let's take a look. And this is also the key lame approach. The fact that the original mitzvah, what was the original mitzvah? One candle for everybody in the house. So what would that parallel? That parallel is the actual physical doing of mitzvahs. Because when you actually physically do a mitzvah, everybody does a mitzvah the same way. You light a candle, you light a candle. There's no better way, you know, the biggest tzaddik, let's say hearing a chauffeur, a big, the biggest tzaddik in the world is the same ear as the biggest rush in the world ear. You do a mitzvah, I'm just talking about the physical, nothing about the same way, right? And that's the kid. There's no difference. So one, one for everybody. One for everybody. Everybody's the same. When it comes to action, it's all the same. Okay, that's the bottom level. Now let's take it up. Next level is what? One candle for each and every person. What's in one candle for every person? Well, the truth is, when you come to the level of emotion, everybody's different. Your emotions, how you're emotionally connected, we can all light the candle the same way, but what am I thinking of? What am I feeling? What am I feeling? I can have strong feelings. So now everybody lights their own candle, one candle for everybody in the house, so because because everyone's emotions are different. But finally, what's the last level? Every day an increase. You add mostly vaholech, that's the brains. Because as time passes, your brains get bigger. You understand more and more and more. And that becomes, you want your thinking to always be expansive. So from the basic mitzvah to the highest mitzvah, it's action, thought, and uh, action, speech, and thought. And that's how these three ways of fulfilling the myths are the three ways of being able to go against the Greeks. So, like it's a the so, so really comes out what we're learning, the, the take-home message is, although normally we, tr- we really love the top-down approach, but when the Greek way of life is infiltrating, you know, you can argue with these guys all day long. Yeah. When you're trying to be Makar of people, people who are very argumentative, don't argue with them. You're never going to out-argue them because they're always smarter than you. Right. He said, well, how about we just put on film today? Here's $100 and put on film. Ultimate, and that's how you have to do with our own Yetzirahs. Sometimes yeah. our own Yetzirahs get very philosophical with us and say, what does it really matter what you do? It's not going to make a difference. That. Just put it on. And that's how we ultimately... Is that what Nike said? Yes, just, just do it. it on. Okay, shkayach everybody.